Our sermon this morning is on Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. Uh, the, the episode of, of Jesus uh, weeping over Jerusalem, looking out at the city of Jerusalem and, and weeping and lamenting there, uh, you know, you know what, what's going on there. So everything, everything that we're going to see in Luke uh, from, from this point forward is, uh, it kind of, kind of is, takes place over the last few days of Jesus' life. Jesus has been traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's just now arriving in Jerusalem and, uh, and so between the, the next several chapters, which is going to take us uh, plenty of weeks, I mean, a, a good amount of time, but all of the sermons that we're going to hear over the next couple chapters of Luke really take place in the, the Passion Week, kind of the last week of Jesus's uh, life. Today, uh, just a real short text, you can uh, see it, just four verses here, um, but it, uh, it really gives us insight into and kind of perspective into the heart of of, of Christ, the heart of Christ for sinners and, and sufferers. Uh, and we can, you know, kind of see an invitation from Christ uh, extended to sinners and sufferers to, to come to them. So I'll read Luke nineteen forty one to 44, and then we will we'll get to work. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known On this day, the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on our time together in your word this morning. We pray that you would draw near to us and and meet us here and teach us and help us and equip us. Lord, we know that apart from your Holy Spirit, that nothing happens, right? We're we're just reading words on a page. I'm saying words into the air. But through the Holy Spirit, our eyes are opened, our hearts are set aflame, our spirits are emboldened, and we can be conformed into the image of Christ. We ask humbly but boldly for you to do that this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he, Jesus, he wept over it. Remember what's just happened in uh, chapter, in verses 28 to 40. Jesus kind of makes this triumphal procession into the city of Jerusalem. He's greeted with a huge crowd, celebrating, praising, right? It's Palm Sunday, so they're waving palm branches. It's a big uh, deal. So he's got this big, huge crowd on the one side. Then on the other hand, you've got these Pharisees, self-righteous, religious, prideful. They're rebuking Jesus, demanding that he rebuke his disciples, tell them to be quiet. It's this very polarized scene where some people are ecstatic and some people are furious. Right? Some people recognize the king who is among them. They receive him. They celebrate him. Some people reject the king who is coming among him. They stand in judgment over him. They speak down to him like he's a, a child or someone who is under their authority. And in the midst of all that, 
Jesus as He is drawing closer and closer to Jerusalem and He's kind of looking at the, the cityscape and kind of taking it in, He uh, you know, steps away to the side uh, and He breaks down into tears and starts, uh, starts weeping. We don't know what exactly it was that caused Jesus to weep. Right? Um, could have been the thousands of people rejoicing, waving palm branches because he knows uh, by virtue of being God, by virtue of being omnipotent, right? He knows that in a few short days they're going to switch sides and they'll be persuaded and incited by the Pharisees to, to shout to have Jesus crucified so uh, passionately, so you know, fervently that they overcome uh, Pontius Pilate's objections and, and his pleas to not crucify Jesus. They overcome him and yell all the louder. So he could know the the fickle hearts and the the unsteady hearts of the crowd and it could make him sad. Um, It could be contemplating his disciples, knowing that many of, all of them, are going to abandon uh, him. Uh, Several in in particular, you know, Judas Iscariot particularly is going to betray him for money and lead his accusers and murderers right to him. Peter is going to deny him out of fear multiple times despite his zeal and his passion and his his fervor. Zechariah chapter 13 says, Strike the sheep, or strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. Jesus knows that's going to come about. Could be that that brings him to tears. Uh, Could be the the Pharisees, right? The religious elites who just looked at him and said, uh, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, right? Uh, Looking down on him, you know, speaking uh, down to to him, questioning him, scrutinizing him, judging him. Could be that Jesus is crying because he looks at these men and realizes that their opposition, their rejection is going to bring down the terrible judgment of God on their heads. That could bring Jesus to tears because despite his opposition to the Pharisees and despite their opposition to him, Jesus still loves the Pharisees, right? He still wants them to repent and and come to him. And the thought of them spending eternity separated from him in hell brings him to Tears. I read a, a letter from a Christian leader who was, uh, you know, looking back on a, a life of ministry uh, and specifically looking back on how he uh, confronted uh, particular sins during the course of his ministry, sexual sin, ab- abortion, racism, abuse, things like that. And he said, ultimately, the reason why I confronted these issues, you know, is, is because I believe in the doctrine of hell. I believe in standing against sin and oppression and exploitation, not just because I care about the victims, although I certainly do, but I also love the people who are doing the oppressing and the exploiting. I believe that unrepentant sin that is not brought to the light of Christ and cleansed by the blood of Christ through the gospel leads to hell. I really believe in hell. And that's why I've been so clear in confronting these sins during the course of my ministry. Can't help but think that there's a little bit of that going on in Jesus' heart here as well as he's weeping, looking at the city of Jerusalem. He's realizing uh, even these people who are his most ardent 
uh, you know, opponents and are constantly trying to undermine his ministry, he still has a, uh, a deep sadness and emotion about, about them and about the judgment of God that they are going to, going to experience. So, it could be the crowd, it could be the apostles, it could be the, the Pharisees, it could be just the, the city itself, the entire city. Thou, tens of thousands of people live in Jerusalem full-time at this, at this time. Thousands more would kind of travel into Jerusalem for the Passover season, so he could just see, right, is, you know, Israel is the, the crown jewel of God's, uh, of, of all of humanity for, for God, and Jerusalem is the crown jewel of the, of the nation of Israel, and here is Jesus looking at it, reflecting on the fact that Israel is not going to receive him as their king. Instead, they're going to kill him like a, like a common criminal. Like, like, like they've done with the prophets before, before him, and it brings him to tears. It's reminiscent of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 13, where he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. It's the, it's the emotion that Jesus feels as he looks at the city of uh, Jerusalem and considers, considers how they're responding to him. He cares about them. He longs to be with them. He longs to have them near him, but he knows that they uh, don't want to be want to be near him. So the the heart of Christ is one that that loves sinners, longs for sinners, and is deeply broken and sad at the thought of being separated from the sinners that he loves. The heart of Christ, the emotion of Christ, the way that Jesus feels about sinners and sufferers about us is maybe um, an underdeveloped or underemphasized area of theology, especially for, you know, people that run in, run in our circles. Uh, we, you know, we, we in, in, you know, tend to make a big deal out of who Jesus is and what he has done, the person of Christ and the, the work of Christ. And, and rightly so. Those are important doctrines. They need to be emphasized. They need to be reiterated, right? Much of the, the first couple centuries of the, the early church were spent trying to kind of nail down and understand who Jesus is, the, the idea of, of Christology, right? Jesus is fully God and fully man. The Council of Chalcedon in 451 was this big kind of meeting where we kind of gather together and, and figure out, you know, who Jesus is. We care a lot about who Jesus is. Uh, and, and then what Christ has done, the work of Christ, called the atonement, right? The, the Reformation, among other points in church history, have been, you know, had a strong emphasis on the atonement and what Christ has accomplished at the cross, right? Did he, did he die as a martyr, right? A, a prophet standing up for what he believed in? Did he die as an example to show us what it looks like to be faithful unto death, to, to, to you know, obey God? Or did he die as a substitute in place of sinners, paying the penalty for their sin, satisfying the demands of the justice of God so that sinners could be forgiven freely by God without compromising his justice and his righteousness. So that last one is what's called penal substitutionary atonement, which is what we, we hold to here. I mean, there, uh, so all of those, none of those things are wrong. There's a sense in which Jesus did die as a martyr and as a, an example, but ultimately he, was, he died as, as a substitute, as a sacrifice for 
uh, sin. So we think a lot about who Jesus is. He's fully God. He's fully man. And what Jesus has done on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God and pay the penalty for sin. But do we think as much about uh, the heart of Christ? We think about the person of Christ and the work of Christ. I wonder if we think about the heart of Christ. There's a, there's a Puritan pastor named Thomas Goodwin who wrote a book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. And this is the next quote here. This is how it, how it begins. It says, having, this is a long one, so settle in. Having set forth our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in all those great and most solemn actions of his, his obedience unto death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his sitting at God's right hand and, a, and intercession for us, I shall now discuss the heart of Christ as now he is in heaven, sitting at God's right hand and interceding for us how it is affected and graciously disposed towards sinners on earth that do come to him, how willing he is to receive them, how ready he is to entertain them, how tender to pity them in all their infirmities, both sins and miseries. Let's see the next slide. The scope and use whereof will be this, to hearten and encourage believers to come more boldly to the throne of grace unto such a Savior and High Priest when they shall know how sweetly and how tenderly his heart, though he is now in his glory, is inclined toward them. And so to remove that great stone of stumbling which we meet with and in the thoughts of men in the way of faith that Christ being now absent and further exalted so high and infinite a distance of glory as to sit at God's right hand, they therefore cannot tell how to come to treat him about their salvation so freely and with that hopefulness to obtain as poor sinners did who were here with him on earth. Next slide. For they beheld him before uh, a man like unto themselves, and he was full of meekness and gentleness, and being then himself made sin and sensible of all sorts of miseries, but now he has gone into a far country. He has put on glory and immortality, and now his heart may be altered, thereby we know not. But Christ's heart... In respect of pity and compassion, it remains the same now when he is on heaven as it was when he was on earth. That he intercedes there with the same heart now that he did when he was here below. And that he is as meek and as gentle and as easy, easy to be entreated and tender. And my hope is that sinners and sufferers may deal with him as fairly about the great matter of their salvation, and as hopefully, upon as easy terms to obtain it of Him, as they might as if He had been here on earth with them, and be as familiar with Him in all their needs, so that they might be comforted and encouraged as their souls pursue after strong and entire communion with their Savior, Jesus Christ. The heart of Jesus for sinners and sufferers. The fact that he loves you, the fact that his, his arms are wide open welcoming you to him, the fact that, that your sin and rebellion breaks his heart and moves him to tears. How do we see Jesus? How do we think that Jesus feels about us? It's another quote from a newer book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Well, on the same topic. In fact, it was prob- it's probably the, the modern-day version of, that, uh, of that, that book I just quoted from. He reads, The gospel offers us not only legal exoneration, 
inviolably precious faith, it also sweeps us into Christ's very heart. You might know that Christ died and rose again on your behalf to rinse you clean of all your sin, but do you know His deepest heart for you? Do you live with an awareness of not only His atoning work for your sinfulness, but also of His longing heart amidst your sinfulness? Go to the next one. A wife may tell you much about her husband. His height, his eye color, his eating habits, his education, his job, his handiness around the house, his friends, his hobbies, his Myers-Briggs personality profile, his favorite sports team. But what can she say to communicate his knowing gaze across the dinner table at their favorite restaurant? That look that reflects years of ever-deepening friendship, thousands of conversations and arguments through which they have safely come, a time-ripened settling into the assurance of embrace, come what may, that glance that speaks in a moment His loving protection more clearly than a thousand words. In short, what can that wife say to communicate to another her husband's heart for her? It's one thing to describe what your husband says and does and looks like. It is something else, something entirely deeper and more real to describe his heart for you. And so with Christ. It's one thing to know the doctrines of the incarnation and the atonement and a hundred other vital doctrines. And it is another more searching matter to know Christ's heart for us. Jesus looked out at the crowd, at a a sea of sinners and sufferers, and he wept. He was broken deep in his heart, in the the bowels of his being. He was was crying and, and weeping because he loved them deeply with a love that can never change, never wane, never diminish. And then here's what he says. We can go back to the, to the first slide if, if, if we're able to. Um, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Right? So he's looking at sinners, sufferers, people worshiping him, his disciples, uh, Pharisees grumbling at him, you know, just the entire spectrum of different responses to Jesus. And he says, I wish you had known the things that make for peace. Right? Which raises the question, what's he talking about? What, what, what peace is he talking about? And what are the things that make for peace that Jesus wishes that these people had known? The Bible speaks of peace, specifically in the New Testament, uh, primarily in two different ways. The peace uh, of God and peace with God are kind of two phrases that we'll see uh, in various points in the New Testament. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7 uh, speaks of the peace of God. Paul says, do not be anxious in anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the peace of God uh, seemingly is the, the absence of anxiety. Right? It, it's, this, it's this place where you're fully knowing God, trusting God, believing Him to keep His, His promises. And there's some sort of state of being, some sort of experience, some sort of feeling where... And it transcends understanding. 
right? Where, where we kind of know and trust that God is, is guarding us. We're not worried. We're not agitated. We're not in distress. We're experiencing stillness and calmness. This is the peace of God. But there's another way that the New Testament speaks of peace. It's in Romans 5. Uh, peace with God. Paul, same author, says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've obtained access by faith into this grace which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which seems to be speaking less about uh, an inner feeling of placidness or calmness or, or you, know, uh, you know, enjoying uh, who I am and where I am. And it seems to be more speaking to some sort of external reality that's, that's kind of, uh, you, know, il, you know, expounded on later in the chapter. We have now been justified through Christ's blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We were enemies of God, but we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. To, ha- to have peace with God, to be given peace with God, is to be reconciled to God where we were formerly enemies of God. So the, the human heart uh, stands in opposition to God in its natural disposition. It wants to destroy God. It wants to annihilate God. It wants to remove God from the, the picture. I don't want to have an authority outside of myself. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I want to live for myself and make much of myself and gratify my desires. I want to be the king. No one tells me what to do. And of course, God uh, is an authority over us. Right? God is someone that we have to answer to. You can, you can eat of any tree you want in the garden, but do not eat from that one tree. The human heart sees God. And instead of instinctively seeing a loving Father who created us and wants good for us and wants to live in a loving relationship with us, all the human heart sees is someone trying to be in authority over me. Someone trying to put his foot on my neck. Tell me what to do. Tell me where I can and cannot go. And the human heart hates that. It it's, stands in opposition to that. There's hostility between the human heart and God. And, and it's, it's the other way as well. God sees the human heart. God sees a, a, a heart that is selfish, that is selfish and prone to worship itself, prone to worship, uh, you know, other things instead of giving worship to God as he deserves. And God is offended by that. And there's hostility from God to, to man. And so when Jesus died in our place and paid the penalty for our sin and satisfied the wrath of God and poured His Holy Spirit out onto us and gave us a new heart, He didn't just give us a settledness and a calmness in our soul. He didn't just give us the peace of God. He gave us peace with God, a a restored relationship with God where there was formerly enmity. I can't help but think that that's what Jesus has in view here in Luke chapter 19. Right? You did not know the things that make for peace. He's speaking of peace with God, a restored relationship with God, reconciliation where there was formerly hostility and enmity. You didn't know what it would take to have that. 
You are, you are experiencing a deficit, a dearth of peace, and you don't know how to not have that. You don't know how to have peace. You don't know what you need to do in order to experience peace with God. You're, you're hurrying around. It's Passover season, hustle, bustle, busyness, preparations, rules, traditions, expectations about how things are supposed to go. And all the while, you're not at peace with God, and you don't know how to have peace with God. You don't know how to, how to have a restored relationship with God. Uh, author, philosopher, Henry David Thoreau contracted tuberculosis in 1835. He was on his deathbed for a couple of weeks. A friend of his, a devout Christian, uh, came to visit him when he was on his deathbed and said, Henry, have you made your peace with God? And his response was, I didn't know that God and I had ever quarreled. Jesus is looking at these people that seem to be unaware of, indifferent to the reality that they are not at peace with God. They didn't know that there was a quarrel. It's like like a, a, a bad husband who cheats on his wife and takes her for granted and has broken her heart and she's about to leave him and file for divorce and he doesn't, he's not even aware doesn't know, doesn't care. And Jesus looks out at the sea of people who are actively and passively rejecting a relationship with him. They're rebelling against his sovereign royal authority. They're not at peace with him, and they don't know that they're not, and they don't know how to be made at peace with him, and it moves him to tears. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Which seems to imply that there's some sense in which the human heart can cross some line or some threshold where uh, God has been pursuing us relentlessly and we have been rejecting God and stiff-arming Him relentlessly and at some point God consigns us to our own rebellion. At some point God kind of, you know, withdraws away from from his pursuit of his of his people his pursuit of the people that he wants to be with him he withdraws away from them that's why we see verses like romans chapter one uh human beings suppress the truth of god and unrighteousness they don't honor god they exchange the glory of god for idols and images and because of that god gave them over to their sinful desires god gave them over to a depraved mind or, yeah, Matthew 12, right? If anyone deliberately, repeatedly rejects the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their life as he invites them to trust in Christ, or if they reject the gospel over and over, then eventually they, they kind of forfeit the privilege of being forgiven by, by God. Hebrews 6, right? There are some people who turn away from the Lord, right? They see the truth and beauty and goodness of the gospel and still reject it. They choose what the world has to offer instead of God and his glory, and they cannot be brought back to repentance. There's some... There's some line in which God says, now the truth of the gospel and the privilege of responding rightly to the gospel has been hidden from your eyes. Now, I, I don't know that we can know where that line is, right? I don't know if we can ever know if we've crossed it or if a friend or a loved one has crossed it. I'm inclined to think that 
you know, I'm, I'm inclined to think that uh, if you, if a friend, loved one, someone you're sharing the gospel with, uh, it's, it's a pretty safe assumption to think that they haven't crossed it. Um, because we know that it's, you know, we know that there are really bad sinners who get saved in the Bible, right? The New Testament churches were filled with adulterers, idolaters, sexual sinners, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, but they were saved and washed. They were sanctified by Christ and his blood. Paul himself was, was, uh, you know, he organized the persecution and murder of Christians so the worst of sinners are not beyond hope. They're not beyond the reach of God's grace. So be comforted by that as you share the gospel with friends and family. Or if yourself, if you're worried that you yourself have at some point in the past committed some unforgivable sin. Chances are you haven't. Because if you care, if you care about whether or not you've committed the unforgivable sin, then that's, that right there is evidence that you haven't because the unforgivable sin seems to be persistent, continual rejection of the Holy Spirit and the gospel, wanting nothing to do with Jesus and just utter cold indifference to God and the things of God for your whole life. It's the unforgivable sin. So if you find yourself wondering, uh, has my friend or loved one committed this unforgivable sin? Uh, Chances are they haven't because there are probably worse sinners than them who got saved in the Bible. And if you think you maybe have, chances are you haven't if that's something, that's even a category you're thinking of. Something that you're even thinking about at all. But according to Jesus, there's some, some space, some, some line, some threshold where, uh, you know, the, the truth of God, the gospel can be hidden from our eyes. And then in verses 43 and following, he kind of explains what will come as a result from these people having reached that point for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. They'll surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm sad, I'm devastated, I'm weeping because you have rejected me as your king. You've rejected my offer of peace. And now that offer has been withdrawn. Now it's hidden from your eyes. And now uh, what is to store is inevitable judgment destruction, the wrath of God. Your enemies will surround you. There will be no way out, no escape, no alternative. They'll tear you down to the ground. The very last stone is going to be crushed and reduced to rubble. Destruction is comprehensive. Buildings decimated, crops burned, salt poured on the ground so that nothing can grow there again. The judgment is so severe, so thorough, so exhaustive, there will be nothing left. And that's the picture that Jesus uh, paints of God's judgment and God's wrath against sinners. Total, absolute, comprehensive annihilation. Everything you worked for, gone. Everything you've built, is gone. Everything that you prize and cherish is gone. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how smart and cool you are. Everything will be destroyed and overcome by the wrath and judgment of God. And in the grand scheme of eternity, the only thing that matters is whether you've been reconciled to God through Christ. If you fail there and succeed everywhere else, it's all for nothing. 
Don't spend your life building a house on the sand where the rain will come, the stream will rise, the wind will blow, and the house will be destroyed. Instead, build your house on the rock where the rain comes, the streams blow, the wind, wind blows, and it's built on a solid foundation. Jesus says if you, uh, if, if you invest in other things other than the gospel, you, you have in front of you uh, inevitable and total destruction and judgment and, and punishment. So the implication is, right, receive Jesus now as king. Make peace with God now while you can, lest you find yourself surrounded, torn down to the ground, and destroyed by his wrath uh, forever. Right? It's kind of how it uh, circles back up to verse, uh, to verse 41, right? In verse 41, Jesus is weeping. And in verse 43 and 44, Jesus is speaking of, uh, you know, wrath, destruction, judgment. And so we can kind of see Jesus' compassion for the people that he loves and Jesus' anger and, and fury for the, the things that threaten to harm the people that he loves. They, they rise and fall uh, together. We're going to see that more next week as we uh, get into the, the next passage where Jesus um, uh, you know, cleanses the temple and turns, turns tables over outside of, of the temple. Another interesting thing about verses 43 and 44, uh, it's not just that Jesus is telling us about the, the judgment of God and the wrath of God and warning us against it, but it's also a, a physical, uh, real prophecy about what's going to to happen in in a few short decades in 66 AD tension started to escalate between the Jewish people and the Roman Empire because of Rome's oppressive taxes in 70 AD Rome besieged the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and destroyed all of the other buildings and structures and set the the city on fire and so Jesus's words here are not only prophetic in the far term in terms of eternal realities, heaven, hell, judgment of God, but they're also prophetic in the near term. And so we can trust Jesus and take him at his word because what he says comes true, right? The prophecies that he make actually come to pass. So verse 41, we see Jesus' compassion as he weeps. Verse 42, uh, you know, he, he's uh, lamenting that no one has taken him up on his offer for peace to be reconciled with God. Verses 43 and 44, Jesus is speaking of coming, the coming judgment of God for those who neglect to respond to the gospel. And then finally, this last verse. Uh, all of this is going to happen because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the reason why you will be destroyed by the wrath of God, right? Because, because you have received a visitation, you've received a visitor, and you didn't know it, you failed to see it, and you didn't care, you, you, you were indifferent to the reality that you, right, he's referring to himself, right? Uh, you know, in, in the, the passage that just preceded this, uh, Jesus tells a story about a nobleman who travels to a distant country, he's crowned king, and then he returns to his hometown as their king, presents himself, hey everyone, I'm back, I'm the king now. Some people receive him, some people reject him, and they don't want him as their king. And then Jesus has this triumphal procession into Jerusalem. Hey, everyone, I'm the king. I'm here. Some people receive him. Some people reject him and don't want him as their king. And now here in verses 41 to 44, he's saying, don't miss 
the significance of what's happening here, right? I'm the true king. I have come to visit. I've come from heaven here to earth to be with you on a visitation. Don't be unaware of, don't overlook the, the time of your visitation that is, that is happening. The true king is here among you. And now you can respond in one of two ways. You can recognize me as the true king, receive me, trust in me, and worship me, or you can miss it. You can not know the time of your visitation, and you can therefore invite the judgment and the wrath of God. Don't, don't fail to see, don't fail to respond to the visitor that is in your midst. The second person of the Trinity, God himself has become a man, has dwelt among you to invite you into a reconciled, restored relationship with him. Don't miss it. Don't ignore it. Don't take it for granted. Here, here I am. See me. Realize who I am. Realize what I have come here to do and how I have called you to respond so that you can be spared from the wrath of God. Which again, is kind of a call back to verse 42. Would that you know this day, the things that make for peace. Right? We, we raised that question a few minutes ago. What are the things that make for peace? And we hadn't really answered it until now. The things that make for peace, in verse 42, is knowing the time of your visitation, in verse 44. Right? It's recognizing who Jesus is, recognizing what he has done. It's looking at yourself and your life, recognizing how you have rebelled against him, recognizing that the rightful king of your life has come and presented himself to you. He's offered himself to you. He's offered you an opportunity to surrender, to bow your knee to him, to recognize his true kingship, his authority, so that you can be spared from his coming wrath and judgment. That's the visitation. And that's what is happening right now, right? Jesus is here. Jesus is the king. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is gentle and lowly. He's gracious and inviting. He's weeping with compassion. But he's also offering us a chance to surrender and to make peace with him, to come to terms with him right here so that we are saved from, spared from his destruction. If we don't respond to Jesus, He will destroy us. He will surround us. He will hem us in on every side and tear us down to the ground and leave us without even one stone on top of another. But if we do respond to Jesus, then we can enjoy and experience peace with God. We can be spared from the judgment and the wrath of God so that He will not destroy us. Respond to Christ with repentance and faith. He will welcome you into His presence, forgive your sin, pour His Holy Spirit out on you, give you new life, empower you to live for Him and to walk with Him. Right? Recognize, know the time of your visitations, recognize Jesus, and respond with repentance and faith. Turn from your sin, turn from your selfishness, turn to Christ in faith, trust Him, place the the full weight of salvation on his shoulders. Look to Jesus instead of yourself. Look to Jesus instead of your own righteousness. Look to Jesus instead of your intellect. Look to Jesus instead of your accomplishments. So you can experience peace with God and be saved from the, the wrath of God. Repentance and faith are the things that make for peace. They are the things that make a way for us to be saved from our sin. 
and they're what we celebrate at the communion table. They're what we remember each month when we celebrate communion, right? Jesus is our king. Jesus came to us. Jesus gave his life for ours. Jesus' body was broken. Jesus' blood was poured out so that we could be saved from our sin and reconciled to God. And when we eat the bread and drink the, the cup, it is a symbol of personally appropriating what Jesus has done. It's a symbol of repentance and, and faith. We remember it and we celebrate it. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, then the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for you to remember and celebrate the sufficiency of the person and work of Christ, how he has died for you to save you from your sins. We invite you to come up during the last song, eat the bread, drink the cup, remember and rejoice. If you're not a Christian, we don't invite you to take communion, but rather we invite you to take Christ. We invite you to personally appropriate who Jesus is and what he has done by turning from your sin and by trusting in him so that you can enjoy peace with God and be saved from the wrath of God and be prepared to take communion with us uh, when we celebrate next time. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to us as our Savior and as our King. Lord, we pray that we could know the time of our visitation, that we could recognize that you have come to us and that we could uh, bow our knee to you. Lord, we pray that we could know the things that make for peace, that we could turn from our sin and trust in you so that we might be reconciled to you and saved from your wrath. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.